Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Game Grid Lehigh. Game Grid Lehigh is an amazing place to buy and sell Magic the Gathering singles. Whether you're building a new cube or crafting your new constructed deck, Game Grid Lehigh is the place to do it. Got a draft coming up with some friends? Buy some seal product here and get it quick. So click the referral link in the description to help out the show. And don't forget to use the code DRAFTPRO10 to get 10% off on your next order at gglehigh.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and this week I'm going to be discussing red-green tricks in Dominaria United. So, the title of this, calling it red-green tricks, implies that I think that tricks are, like, always essential to red-green, and I think that I do believe that. It's hard for me to imagine a version of red-green that is not interested in some tricks, uh, you can be more or less interested, but the tricks are very good. They're kind of the big draw for me to playing red-green at all. Green has really good combat tricks in this format that most decks don't use especially well. Uh, red-green does use them very well. Uh, part of that is that you get the you get consistent access to the kicker on colossal growth, but also you have a lot of creatures that naturally have Trample for Gaia's Might and Furious Bellow. You end up in a spot where you have a lot of big creatures. Usually, across formats in general, I don't think of tricks as playing well with big creatures. But when the big creatures have Trample or the tricks give Trample, it gets a little bit better. And the sizing of creatures in this format just seems to work out pretty well for using combat tricks on creatures. So that's kind of what's going on here. While I think like all of the versions of red and green are really about like attacking with big creatures and pairing that with combat tricks, there's kind of a weird amount of clusters of synergy that are relevant to consider for the deck. Specifically, managing your trample. Like either you have colossal growth as your primary trick, like maybe you have multiple copies of Colossal Growth and not very many copies of other tricks, and then you don't really care if your creatures have Trample as much because your trick can give Trample, or you don't have Colossal Growth and you have Gaia's Might and Furious Bellow instead, and then you really want to prioritize creatures that naturally have Trample. So there's some amount of like managing just which tricks want to go with which creatures, but then there's also... like. Are you trying to cast Molten Monstrosity, uh, which is the 8-mana 5-5 trample that costs less for the power of your strongest creature? If you are, how are you trying to do that? Do you just have, like, an Ashoba Brawler and you're going to get Domain and uh, maybe you have multiple of them or something? Or are you trying to use Enlist? And if you're trying to use Enlist... Do you have a plan for making your creature survive combat so that you can cast the monstrosity after? Um, usually that's going to be pairing enlist with a trick, but maybe you don't need enlist. Maybe you just have like a get to amplifier and a trick, and then your get to amplifier has enough power by itself. And then like Gaia's Might, the way that Gaia's Might interacts with Molten Monstrosity could be really good or not that great, depending on how reliably your Gaia's Might is pumping for four or five. So there's a lot of little stuff to consider. You know, like, are you trying to 
like combo your tricks to get a lethal attack out of nowhere? If so, is ward going to be better for you to protect your, you know, to, to make it safer to go for? Or are you just trying to use tricks to push creatures through in combat and then maybe you want menace? Maybe you're looking for flowstone kabu so that at some point your opponent will double block and then you'll kill two creatures with a single trick. And then how are you prioritizing lightning strike and bite down compared to tricks? If you're playing molten monstrosity, you would probably rather have tricks. If you're not playing molten monstrosity, there's a good chance you would prefer uh, lightning strike and bite down. Is lightning strike or bite down better for you? If you're low on two drops and you have a lot of big things, then lightning strike is a lot better, which is weird. You might think the big things make the bite down better, but my thinking is if your opponent's going to get out ahead and you're not going to be able to cast the bite down because you don't have a creature in play, that's where lightning strike is going to be a lot better. And then if you are reliably going to have a creature in play and your creatures have a good amount of power, then it might be closer, or bite down might possibly be better if you're worried about dealing with big creatures and you have big creatures, but you're going to want to have, you know, good uh, two and three mana creatures so that you can bite down early if you have to. So there's a lot of, you know, just little stuff that can change exactly how you're prioritizing things. Like if you have two Colossal Growths or two Gaia's Mites, uh, if you have the two Colossal Growths, you might, you'd probably prefer Magnagoth Sentry to Coalition Warp Root. That's the 4-4 Reach over the 3-4 Trample and List. But if you have two Gaia's Mites and no Colossal Growths, you might prefer the 3-4 Trample and List to the 4-4 Reach. So this isn't going to like radically swing things, but it's just stuff to watch for that's going to push you toward one card or another. One of the other big questions is, are you straight red green? Are you red green splash? Are you red straight red green but domain where you care a lot about just getting random different land types? You're not really ever planning to use the off colors of mana, but you have some combination of Gaia's Might, Myria's Outrider, and Sunbathing Rootwalla that makes you want to prioritize getting your things for domain. Uh, there are some other like uncommons and stuff that could be a factor, but mostly it's going to be those commons. What about loose partial splashes? Like, What if you aren't playing any off-color cards, but you have some kickers? You can have any of like Gitu Amplifier, Keldon Strike Team, Bog Badger, that could take advantage of any or all of the different colors that you could find, even if you never need any of them to cast your spells. Vine Shaper Prodigy is another good off-color kicker card that you might play. All of those are functional in your deck to cast without the kicker, but become a lot better if you can kick them some portion of the time. And all of them are like really quite good to kick. I'm particularly want to call attention to bog badger's menace i think is like a pretty good thing to have access to in some versions especially if you're on the creature heavy side rather than the spell heavy side if you're on the spell heavy side menace isn't going to be as good the boards are generally going to be smaller but if you're a little bit low on tricks and removal it's very easy for a deck with big creatures to end up in a board stall and in that spot bog badger would be really valuable whereas if you have more tricks and removal, then get to amplifiers a lot better. Your opponent's more likely to have only a single creature, so kicking it to bounce that creature is going to be the more efficient way to push a good attack. And 
uh, your additional tricks and removal are going to give you more triggers for the get to amplifier to increase its power if you end up casting it as an early creature or just play a long game and you've kicked it and then start attacking with it. So there are all these cards that are, you know, under the umbrella of cards the deck is sometimes interested in, but are differently strong depending on the exact composition of your deck and even just like what mix of duels you have for your splash kickers. You can also go a little further into one of the other colors, planning to actually cast colored spells of that color. Um, my favorite common splash for this archetype is Tolarian Terror. I think that specifically in the late game, pairing Tolarian Terror with Colossal Growth for a hasty 9-9 Trample Ward uh, is very strong. And you basically like you're not trying to terror to terror super early if you're if like there are some you can pivot into a blue with red or green splashing the other version of this deck. But assuming that you're red green splash blue, you're probably not trying to terror super early, but that's fine. You have a lot of time to cast your spells to make it cheaper and to find your blue source. And then once you do, you just get a very efficient big monster that plays well with your game plan because ward is very important uh, with the tricks sometimes and you're just looking for more big creatures and it lets you double spell on the turn that you play it a lot of the time and stuff like that. Touching on some stats briefly, I continue to be a little bit baffled by the top player stats when I try to dive in deeply to what's going on. For example, with the red-green in this format, the top commons are Colossal Growth, Miria's Outrider, and Gaia's Might in that order. That makes a reasonable amount of sense to me. I think, as I've mentioned, the tricks are very important. And then Miria's Outrider is just very good, especially if you are uh, trying to do the domain thing for your Gaia's Mites and Root Walls. So that, that wasn't too weird to me. Among the top players, the top commons are in order Furious Bellow, number one, followed by Lightning Strike, then Bite Down, then Colossal Growth, then get to Amplifier, then Molten Monstrosity in that order, which is interesting, especially since outside of top players, get to Amplifier doesn't even make like the top 15 commons. Some amount of small sample size, some amount of really leaning into some amount of synergies, perhaps. Like it doesn't escape notice that get to Amplifier plus Furious Bellow plus Molten Monstrosity, those three cards specifically do a thing if you play all of them. So maybe the best performing players are really leaning into tricks and monstrosities, but that doesn't really explain Lightning Strike and Bite Down having, like, being at the top of this list, uh, particularly since I think that they don't play well with Molten Monstrosity. I mean, mostly this is to say I think that there are right spots. My, like, my read on cards that do well when top players play them is there are right spots for them and so you should look for times to use them because under the right circumstances they play very well and then for uh the other things i think that that points more to like basically i think the general stats suggest more what's like generally good and then the top player stats suggest like don't dismiss these cards but don't always play them also certainly Furious Bellow being available very cheap in terms of like what pick you have to take it is a big factor. 
interesting situation that I don't have a like fully formed explanation for. Also noteworthy, while top players performing well with Molten Monstrosity suggests that it is good when it's used well, it's noteworthy that even then it does still have a negative improvement when drawn. I think that um, it should not generally be a core part of your game plan and you shouldn't go out of your way to draft around it. If you end up trick heavy removal light with creatures that play well with monstrosities and you get them cheaply, it's okay to put them in your deck. But I think you should, for most of the draft, try to draft expecting not to want monstrosities and continue to prioritize uh, removal and, you know, draft straight up. And then, you know, if in building, then monstrosities are more of a consideration for like deck building than for the draft for the most part. Amplifier, again, I want to mention had, you know, good stats among the best players, bad stats in general, suggesting sometimes good, generally not great. I think it's very important to be able to kick Amplifier reasonably often if you're going to play it, in addition to having a good number of tricks and removal spells. Also, Amplifier is quite a bit better with Colossal Growth and removal spells than it is with tricks that don't give trample being able to kill their creature and then get a big hit in or use colossal growth to trample for a lot with get to amplifiers where you want to be rather than you know like amplifier plus furious bellow and then you just kill their blocker really hard is less impressive because your amplifier has you know variable power and you don't want it to only have high power when it's fighting creatures and then have low power when it's fighting your opponent basically also worth noting i think amplifier is a little bit better with coalition warbrute in particular because of your ability to pass its power along to a trampler if you can pre-combat play your spells um, to get your amplifier big it's something to look for not a big thing Prioritization of lands, I touched on a little bit, where sometimes you are domain and sometimes you aren't. Early in the draft, I think you want to be prioritizing lands pretty highly, uh, you know, over non-essential cards to let yourself take advantage of these things, regardless of whether you already have them. Uh, there are a lot of cards that you want that have domain that aren't super high picks, so you're likely to see them. And then also the more you pick up these random splash lands, the more you can play these kicker cards and have them have the potential to give you extra value. And so that's going to just open the door to more valuable late picks. If you uh, take the lands early, you'll kind of get a little kickback on getting a playable card late that wouldn't have been playable for you if you didn't prioritize the land when you did. So I think it's very normal to want to take lands very, very highly competitive with the best commons. I wouldn't be shocked if it's right to, you know, take a land early over even your actual best commons, Colossal Growth, Gaia's Might, uh, because there's a good chance you can literally table those. So you get the land and then just also get the other card that you wanted from the pack uh, some portion of the time. Another thing that I want to talk about is Twinferno, because I feel like someone brings it up in almost every episode that involves red, uh, even when it doesn't seem like it would be very good. This is the archetype where it makes the most sense. 
even in this archetype, it doesn't have good stats. I think that in almost all situations, regardless of which creatures and pump and how much pump you have, it is almost always better to take any of the common combat tricks over Twinferno. That's not to say that you should never play Twinferno in this deck. There are times when it can do something okay, but it's not very good. I understand that it offers high highs that are very memorable, whether you're playing with it or losing to it, and that makes it appealing, but its average use is just not enough to uh, one prioritize it over the more reliable uh, combat tricks that are all very good. It's okay to play sometimes, but it's really nothing special. You shouldn't take it early or prioritize it. Think of it as a slightly weaker trick than the other commons um, would be my recommendation for how to think about Twinferno in this archetype. Some random other cards to touch on. Elfame Worm is a card that I don't like very much and doesn't have good stats. But if you have a bunch of tricks that aren't Colossal Growth and you need a Trampler, uh, I think this is an acceptable option. I think Coalition Warbrute is a little bit better. Neither is great, but there are some versions of this deck that really, really need Trample, and those are acceptable ways to do it. You would, of course, prefer to find the you know cheap uncommons that have Trample, but uh, those are there for you in a pinch. People often ask me about numbers that I'm looking for, like how many creatures and stuff like that. Uh, I would say that this deck is probably in serious trouble if it has fewer than 13 creatures. You're probably looking for something like 15 to 16. If you have more than that, you're going to end up in spots where you don't have good attacks because you don't happen to have a trick at the right time and you have to just kind of sit there for a while. Or... Uh, maybe your opponent plays some, you know, bomb that you don't have an answer to, and then it's, you know, worst if you also just can't even make an attack. Again, if you are in that spot where you have too many creatures, I think Bog Badger is like the next thing to look for. But you want to target something like 15 to 16 creatures, so that you have enough creatures to reliably have things to target with your combat tricks, so like... You don't have that awkward spot where your hand is just like all tricks, nothing to do with them, and you do nothing. But you also don't want to be so many creatures that you, you know, can't attack into a bigger creature or don't have interaction when you need it, when you need it or whatever. Lightning Strike and Bite Down are generally stronger cards than combat tricks. Uh, they're both pretty similar in quality. I think Lightning Strike is in general better. Uh, I think you generally want them over combat tricks. If you're trying to play Molten Monstrosity, you would probably rather have the tricks. Also, Colossal Growth can pretty easily be better than both of them, depending on your exact creature composition and stuff. I think, in general, the gap between tricks and removal in this particular archetype is much smaller than it is in general. They are very, very similar in terms of total quality. They're often going to be a card that you traded for your opponent's creature, Either one may end up doing more damage to your opponent. It's possible that lightning striking a blocker and then attacking does more damage. It's possible that uh, attacking with a trampler, having them block, and then playing uh, guys might does more damage. It just depends on what tricks, what creatures, what your opponent's creatures are. And it's all kind of uh, all about the same most of the time in terms of like when you're drafting, how much to value them.
uh, a good mix will let you use the right one in the right spot. So it's pretty nice to have a variety, I would say. As far as your curve, I think you want some big stuff, but you want to prioritize twos and threes reasonably highly. Uh, this is because you want to be able to double spell when you play your combat tricks on turns four and five. And you also want to have creatures in place so that you have things to target with your combat tricks so that you don't end up in that spot where, well, I have like my cheap cards are all combat tricks and my expensive cards are all creatures. And now I just can't actually spend my mana in the course of a game because my first play is a creature on turn four and then my opponent bounces it or kills it. And then I have to play another creature and I'm just sitting here with all these cheap combat tricks I can't cast. That's a disaster. You need to make sure that you have a good number of two drops so that you can um, get ahead on board so that even if your opponent has a removal spell, you'll still have something to do with your combat tricks. So you want, you know, more creatures that cost two than three, more that cost three than four, etc. for the most part, if you can manage it. So two drops to look for. The top ones are Sunbathing Rootwall and Goblin Picker, depending on how uh, domainy you are among commons. Uh, there are a bunch of very good uncommons. You would much prefer to have like an Ashoba Brawler or the Iconoclast. But assuming you're working with commons, you're looking for Rootwalls and Goblin Pickers. Uh, goblin pickers, just, you know, respectable stats, being a body kind of comparable to the other things that you're going to play, but then also, you know, lets you discard splash cards you don't have the mana for or extra lands you don't need or whatever. And then sun Sunbathing Rootwalla, uh, a lot of what you're getting out of it is Threat of Activation most of the time. It's very good at pushing some free damage on turns you know, four and five or whatever, where your opponent doesn't want to block it because you could eat their blocker if they did. And then in the late game, uh, actually pumping it becomes pretty important. If you are domain, which you usually are, I think Brutewell is the best common to drop for the deck by quite a bit. And then Picker is like narrowly better than like Steel Crusher and Vine Shaper Prodigy and Get to Amplifier, which uh, all have comparable values depending on how good you are at the blue kickers and you know other specific considerations like are you particularly looking to enlist on the steel crusher for some reason namely that would be monstrosity but it's kind of tricky because you need a way to like make the steel crusher live through combat for that to get you somewhere still might be a consideration your threes aren't great you know, you're looking at things like Flowstone Kavu and Bog Badger and Keldon Strike Team and Automatic Librarian and the 3-2 Ward 2 Enlist Turtle or Tortoise or whatever. I think those are kind of all pretty similar, depending, again, on where your kickers are and stuff. I don't think it matters all that much which common three drops you play, as long as you just have a few of them. Uh, Flowstone Kavu, I think, feels like the most improved in this archetype relative to its usual use case. Uh, Menace plays really well with combat tricks, just getting your opponent to have to double block if they want to like block when you're representing a trick. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the time they do have to double block your Flowstone Kava, you will be able to just kill two creatures for a single trick, which is pretty nice. Um, particularly good, I think, with Furious Bellow. At four, you're mostly looking for Magnegoth Sentry and Coalition Warbrute among commons. And then at five, Miria's Outrider is a lot better than uh, Elfame Worm as your alternative. 
for the most part, you would prefer to, you know. Oh, uh, at four, you also have the branch rider, incidentally, which I think is, I don't know, comparable to the others. Branch rider is awkward in that, like, a lot of the value that you get out of it is haste. But if you're playing a bunch of combat tricks, then when you play a haste creature, your mana is not up in combat, so you can't use any of those combat tricks. That said, it's still probably not that hard to find an occasional turn where the your opponent has or such that you don't need a combat trick and you can get in a good haste attack. The uncommons that you're looking for are very straightforward. Uh, you know, creatures that are better than the common creatures. The Weather Seed Treaty is a very big deal. Weather Seed Treaty is another one to pay specific attention to in terms of using Molten Monstrosity. And I don't think there are any like giant green commons, like six or more mana that you have to like figure out if you want to play or not. Oh, I guess there's the Sojourner, which, you know, is going to be very good if you have a lot of different land types and pretty bad if you're like only medium at domain. So yeah, I think that's, that covers my notes on red green. So going to turn it over to chat for, uh, Questions and comments here. No new patrons this week, sadly, at uh, patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. Also, just remembered that I forgot to remind people about the notes that are up if you wanted to uh, follow along. I hope you knew to do that, and otherwise you can uh, check now to review. But yeah, does anyone in chat have any questions, comments, suggestions about this archetype? Hit me up if you do. Knowing when to lean more into Gaia's Might versus Colossal Growth, I think a lot of it's just going to be about maximizing for the one that you see but a lot of it is going to come down to just do you have good domain stuff do your creatures naturally have trample i think managing the domain part is almost less important than managing the trample part i think that this deck cares a lot about all of the incidental damage that it can push and so you know when you're like you really want to be pairing Gaia's Might with uh, creatures that naturally have Trample and then worrying less about that if you have Colossal Growth or prioritizing just creatures that are naturally bigger if you have Colossal Growth. Like, for example, a thing that you could think about is if you have a bunch of Root Wallas, it's a lot of mana to activate Root Walla and kick Colossal Growth. It's seven, but seven's not an unrealistic amount of mana for this format. Like, Tatiova wins a lot of games. And so it's possible that if you don't have tramplers, you would prefer Colossal Growth to Gaia's Might, even if you are very good at domain, assuming that because you're very good at domain, your creatures are Root Wallas and Myria's Outriders that don't have trample. And so it's more important for you to get that uh, the ability to push damage, especially since you have you know the Myria's Outriders contributing some uh, incidental damage. And then Colossal Growth on that will go a long way. Whereas if you're, you know, just playing uh, Elfame Worms and uh, Coalition Warbrutes, then you might get more value out of the Colossal Growth. Sorry, out of the Gaia's Might. Um, and then also, like, if your Gaia's Mighting well early and you're trying to play a Molten Monstrosity, the fact that it costs only a single mana to cast it might make it a lot easier for you to fast monstrosity than you would with a colossal growth, which is a lot worse at enabling monstrosity. So I guess that's another consideration. Also, I find that I have too many conditional tricks and no hard removal and run into problems with that. Yeah, so I mean, part of this is like, a trick is as good as removal if you can get your opponent to block. 
Part of this is, well, what if they have Death Touch? And that's where Furious Bellow in particular is great. But also just, if you can pressure your opponent enough that they have to block, you get a lot of value out of your combat tricks. Whereas if your opponent doesn't need to block and they have some creature that you need to kill that they aren't blocking with, it's not as good. Uh, that's where you want to have, you know, some lightning strikes and, like, bite downs for, you know, those, like, uncommon two-drop legends like uh, Raph and Ellis and Vohar and also um, Belmore. Um, like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard to get any of those into combat and pretty important to answer them, which is why I think you want to make sure that you have some actual removal in the mix. But, uh, yeah, just if you can get your opponent under a lot of pressure, it's going to be hard for them to just never block. And so the more, like, high-power creatures you can play, the better your curve is. The more you can just push your opponent to a low life total, the more you can force them into a spot where your combat tricks are going to be good. Any thoughts about Death Touch plus Trample in this deck by way of Gardener or some black combat trick? Or the black combat trick? Yeah, I think that, you know, if you are Trample-heavy and splashing black, I uh, do like uh, the Black Combat trick, uh, Battle Rage, whatever, or something. I have seen it cast very few times ever, but when I've cast it, I've had pretty good experiences. I think that this deck does often put the opponent in a spot where they want to double block. You have a huge creature and or you're representing some combat trick. Sometimes they want to just put their entire team in front of something to try to like not die to like a combination of pump spells, it's very, very rare that they're going to expect the black combat trick. So you're going to get some really good blood out of it on uh, your trample creatures. So I do think that if you are in a spot where you actually can reliably cast black spells in like a, you know, more jund type version of this deck, that's a good one to play. As far as Gardener plus Colossal Growth, I wouldn't want to like... Again, to the note of just, like, the more you can get your opponent low, the more they have to play into your combat tricks. Gardner does a very, very good job. They're a very poor job of that. So I think that there are spots where you Gardner, if you're low on threes and fours and you have twos and fives, and you are, like, playing a variety of, like, off-color kickers, and you like that it lets you use all of them and stuff, then there are versions of the deck that would want Gardener, and in that spot, there might be times when it's good to Colossal Growth the Gardener, but for the most part, like, it's very easy to get four damage out of a Colossal Growth, and that's all that's ever happening when you Colossal Growth the Gardener, right? You're, you're not doing more damage than you would uh, if you just pumped, like, an unblocked creature with it, whereas... When you give Death Touch to a large creature that already had Trample, you're kind of like getting damage that you didn't have access to. So I think that the like Gardener Death Touch plus Pump combo is not something I would pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, Colossal Growth on Necromass is a different situation. There, I think, I mean, that one's great. So yeah, like the Jund, like Colossal Growth plus Necromass and also... Battle Rage, Blessing, Death Touch thing on, like, Coalition Warbrute, like, having access to both of that is a good way to, you know, kind of cheese someone out. Which, I mean, is not to besmirch the idea in any way. I would say, you know, cheesing someone out is very much what, 
this archetype is about. It's about, you know, getting them low enough that you can find a way to get an unexpected kill with your, like, uh, combat trick combos. The red-green X deck, I find it almost always uncommon-driven and not rare-slash-mythic. Do you think this makes it overall less powerful? No, not really. Uh, I mean, it makes sense to me. Like, at uncommons, you get more just, like, good-rate aggressive 2- and 3-drops, Whereas at rare, there's some of that, right? There's like the domain three one that would be the Rada's firebrand or something that would be really, really good in this deck. But, you know, most of the time, like we think about, you know, busted rares and mythics that kind of naturally lead to a more controlling deck because they're strong enough that you want to maximize your chances of drawing them in any given game by playing a longer game. Whereas when you just have like, good uncommons that pressure the opponent well, then it's not like you're expecting that they'll, you know, automatically win a late game that you cast them. They're just helping you get damage early. And so they're maximized by trying to, you know, take take the most advantage of that. Uh, use the fact that they have a little bit more power than uh, the average two and three drop to push extra damage. Does the fact that it's relying on those make it less powerful than uh, if it's relying on rares and mythic? No, it means that you're gonna you're more likely to see the cards that you're looking for. Are you better off if you open a bomb? Yes. Are you better off if you build a deck that maximizes the bomb that you open? Yes. But once you're one pack in, would you rather have a deck that will be great if you find the right rare or mythic, or would you rather have a deck that will be great if you find the right uncommons? I think you would often rather be looking for uncommons. You're just a lot more likely to see them. Um, so in that way, as far as like the implied power level offered to you by the rest of the draft, once you start down the path, which I think is the more relevant consideration for like what you should actually take rather than like what you should hope to open. I, I don't think that you're like worse off because uh, your strategy is more, uh, you know, gets more of its value from uncommons. Can I explain the part about get to amplifier at high levels of play again? Yeah. So basically anytime I see cards perform well among top players that didn't perform well in aggregate, I assume that it means that they're good when they're played in exactly the right way and that they are not very good when you aren't playing specifically to their strengths. So that means that I think like with a card like Get to Amplifier, it is probably good if you have at least X blue sources and at least Y non-creature spells to trigger it, or instances and sorceries, whatever it is that it looks for. And at low levels, people probably play it with, you know, under X blue sources and under Y ways to trigger it. Whereas at high levels, people are more likely to only be playing it in the decks where it's best. So this is to say, seeing it do well in top decks doesn't mean you will get top results if you play it. It means this is good at its ceiling, but then when you look at how it is in general, and it's not great, you can assume that it's not great at its floor or even at its general case. So that means that when it looks like everything is going about as well for it as possible in this archetype, you will probably see good results with it and should play it. But if it's 
like below normal synergy, then it's not a good deck for it. The archetypes seem to be a lot heavier on green than red, so it's more likely during a draft that you um, end it when you start in green than when you start in red. I don't know that it has to be higher in green than red. Like, I've talked a lot about some of the green cards, but I think that, you know, Furious Bellow and Lightning Strike and Goblin Picker and Flowstone Kavu and Coalition Warbrute and Miria's Outrider, uh, like, then alternatively, you know, like, Amplifiers and Strike Teams, like, it's, I don't think there's any shortage of red cards that this deck is looking for at Common. I mean, green almost has, like, more off-plan stuff than red, right? Like, basically, you know, you're an aggressive deck. A large portion of red's cards are very much about that, whereas some portion of green's cards are more about, like, doing, you know, like, you're not really looking for a Fluriferous Vinewall in this deck, even if you're playing a bunch of colors and you might benefit from having more access to your land types, you don't want to, like, take a turn off to play an O2. Same situation for, like, the three mana cards that give you mana, like the Gardener and the Scout. So there are just, like, a lot of green cards that aren't really, like, strategically in line with what you're looking for. So as far as, like, is it more likely that you end up here when you start in green than when you start in red? That's more about the extent to which each color is better at doing a different thing, and I think comes down too much in this format to personal preference for me to speak to. I don't know if this was explained earlier, but if this deck is looking for the same cards at the beginning of the draft as the big domain deck, what's the reason for it to go this direction versus going for big domain, which in your experience has yielded better results? So by big domain, I assume we're talking about like more likely to be blue-based and more likely to care about casting spells in other colors as opposed to just like some kickers and some off-color lands for domain. And then a bit of a higher curve and then using all of the like strong uncommons and rares that you see versus uh, like trying to be an aggressive deck that's playing a bunch of tap lands. I think that the deck that's actually trying to cast cards in other colors and playing a bunch of random bombs uh, depends a little bit more heavily on seeing good, like, you know, powerful cards to splash. And I think that, like, the cards that the domain deck want, like, the, um, you know, the, the like, actual five-color serious domain deck wants are generally pretty highly contested. Um, whereas a lot of the key cards for this archetype go very late. So a lot of it's just going to have to do with, you know, what's available in your seat. And it's hard for me to argue too strongly for this deck as someone who is personally more likely to draft in a way that expects to be uh, the, you know, actual five-color deck. I'm in a weird spot where I respect the red-green deck a lot. I think it's good. I've lost to it a lot. But I personally draft the five-color deck more. I, I don't have enough personal experience with this deck outside of getting beaten up by it to really speak to, no, you definitely want to go for it in this spot. But it is apparent to me that the cards come around pretty cheaply and the strategy is coherent. 
such that I like it all it like I lose to it a lot and it makes sense to me why I'm losing to it even if I have I would say struggled to find the right spot to do it in a draft a lot of the time note that this deck is very very poor against destroy evil I uh agree that um destroy evil is really good against you I do think that there's something to be said for your ability to play creatures that don't die to it and then choose how to use your pump spells and you know use them when your opponent doesn't have destroy evil up ideally but certainly uh there's some awkwardness there other decks and archetypes play a lot of tricks i, th I think the answer is none i think that um you know th this deck is the deck that wants the combat tricks which is why I'm saying that I think the cards that you're looking for tend to be uh, available very cheaply. There are, you know, some like blue-red decks that play like a Furious Bellow or two as a way to trigger their Belmore or something, but for the most part, um, there's not a lot of competition for the tricks. Furious Bellow is another, like the fact that Furious Bellow doesn't increase toughness so that you aren't exposed to destroy evil is another, uh, you know, reason that it's good to mix up your combat tricks um and then you know look for the spot where it looks like your opponent is you know making a block that forces a combat trick expecting to get to two for one you would destroy evil and then instead you do that and now they've probably made a block that was pretty bad for them and they didn't get to use their card this deck seems very similar to the is it belmar decks are they almost the same deck had the most success melding the two and being teamer yeah i i do think that there's a lot of overlap there and i do think that like the teamer version plays pretty well i think that the like you know balmore teamer version uh generally wants to play a lot more uh is interested in playing a lot more like cantrips and card draw spells and generally like spending mana in a way that doesn't affect the board very much whereas like i think even if this deck is playing an amplifier you really do not want to have a tormenting voice in your deck or whatever thrill of possibility whatever whatever red discard draw yeah thrill of possibility i think is the one that's in this format not a card that you want in your deck you really want your stuff to be about like you know spending your mana for immediate impact in one way or another in this deck i think I think part of that is like the blue deck ends up having a little bit more freedom to spend its mana on card draw, making up for that with uh, more untapped lands and uh, Telerian Terror, whereas the red-green deck, especially if you're playing a bunch of tapped lands, you, you don't really have the freedom to waste mana not affecting the board, which can lead to the is it version being a little, or the, the teamer version being less interested in domain uh, because you're not really looking to have white and black lands in your deck because you need to reliably have access to three colors of mana instead of only two colors. So I think that like the teamer tricks version uh, is a lot more interested in colossal growth relative to Gaia's Might and then a little bit less interested in like Rootwalla and Outrider because you're going to be worse at domain than the two color deck, weirdly. Like when you add the color, you would think that that would make you more domain, but really it just forces you to consolidate your splash color, making you worse at domain. So you need to like lean into the non-domain aspects of what's going on in this space. All right, I think that's gonna wrap us up. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I'm not sure what 
I don't know when the next set's coming out. We have a few more archetypes to cover. Getting through most of it now, so I assume that means we're getting along in uh, this format, but need to look at the schedule to know for sure. But uh, still, still plenty more to do here. We have moved into the stage where Dominaria with Alchemy is available on Arena. I am only bringing it up to say that that will not be uh, the focus of an upcoming podcast. I'm going to continue to focus on information that is relevant to players across any platform, not just arena players, whenever there is something to talk about. I've played a little bit of uh, this format with Alchemy on stream, but I'm not going to be uh, recording podcast episodes about it specifically. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next week. Have a good week, everyone.